Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is supported this week by Wick Realty. I'm recording this in my house right now and that's where I recorded today's interview and last week's interview and most of the episodes of this podcast. We love our house. And we love our neighborhood, and we're here because Wick Realty helped us sell our previous home and buy this one. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying or selling, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, or if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Proffer Surgical online at drproffer.com. That's drproffer.com. And to OHMS Cafe and Bar online at ohmscafe.com. You can read the free e edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Vicki Wilmarth. Vicki is an employment law attorney and business transactions lawyer with more than 30 years in the business. And she is the person you want to talk to if you have questions about employment, workplace trends, the changing job market, and every other conversation that businesses have been having for the past few years. And we talk about that a little, especially as it relates to the pandemic and the post-COVID workplace. But Vicki is also a very talented photographer and bird watcher who knows as much about the birds of the Texas Panhandle as anyone I know. So clearly this episode covers a lot of interesting ground or air as it were. Here's Vicki Wilmarth. Vicki Wilmarth, welcome to the Hamarillo hey podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Well, I'm excited to have you here. I uh, I've been thinking that you would be an excellent guest for quite a long time and so I'm glad we finally worked it out. Uh, to talk about the stuff that you do, and I know it's it's pretty diverse. Um, so, I'm quirky that way. <laughs> yeah, it's quirky guests are the best kinds of guests. I uh, so I do want to start with you the same place I start with all my guests, and just ask why are you here? How did you end up in the Amarillo area? Probably like a lot of people, I followed a spouse. Okay. Uh, my first husband, Dorsey Wilmarth, took a job with the Emerald Globe News as an editor, and um, I was still in law school, so. I finished law school, took about a year um, to do that, and then moved up here with him. Um, so it kind of wasn't my choice to be okay. in Amarillo. I didn't know anyone here. And Amarillo was that place where we stopped for gas and a bathroom on our way to someplace more interesting. Okay. Where did you come from? <laughs> like, where, where were you in Dorsey before you got here? I grew up in Arlington. Okay. And um, then I went to Baylor and then got married and went to South Texas College of Law in Houston um, so I had never lived anywhere near the panhandle of Texas. Did did he take that job? Like, was Amarillo on his radar as a place that he was looking for work? Or was that just kind of what opened up at the time? No, he was at the Houston Chronicle, and it was just going to be a promotion if he became an editor okay. up here. And it was, of course, going to be a stepping stone, and we were only going to be here a couple of years. And obviously, he was here for... I he's mean, still here. Yeah, he's still here. But like a very familiar name for people who read yes. the newspaper. Yes. Um, and so very ingrained in, in the culture here. I, I want to ask like what you thought, you know, kind of landing here, it turned from a pass-through place into a place that uh, that you planted. 
Yeah, it um, it took a, a little bit of adjustment. <laughs> um, I was used to trees and rain and those kinds of things. And um, but I got up here, and I think the second weekend it was I was here, we had a blizzard, and I thought I have died and gone to hell. What and year it's was frozen that? over? You what year that? Uh, eighty-seven. Okay. And okay. Um, and so <laughs> I thought this is not going to work, you know. But after I had been here about a year. I remember going to a party, and I knew a hundred people at the party at least. And I thought, okay, that's never happened anywhere right. else I've lived. Um, you know, in Houston, we would have friends from work or from school, but they lived an hour and a half away, and you didn't run into them at the grocery store, and you didn't run into them at the movie theater, and it was very difficult to schedule getting together. Mm-hmm. That's not that way in Amarillo. And so after about a year, I realized that I had really settled in and made a lot of friends. Okay. Tell me why you pursued uh, a career in law. Um, The the God's honest truth. I have have a journalism degree Mm -hmm. and uh, print journalism. And uh, but so did my first husband. And he looked at me at one point when we were getting married and said, we can't afford to have two journalists in the family. Somebody's got to make money. You need to do something else. <laughs> and so It's probably a valid point. <laughs> Still applies today, I imagine. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, of course, we're not married anymore, but um, it really turned out to be a tremendous career for me. And I had no idea that it was something I would like. I didn't grow up with lawyers. I mm-hmm. didn't know lawyers. I knew nothing about it. So I took the LSAT and I did really well. And I said, okay, maybe I'm supposed to be a lawyer and still went through three years of law school, not really knowing what it was I was supposed to do. Um, And it wasn't until I got up here and went to work for the Underwood Law Firm that I discovered employment law. Hmm. And uh, there was a case that involved a sex discrimination claim. There was a female attorney on the plaintiff's side and her female client who was claiming she'd been discriminated against. And the firm kind of looked around and said, oh, we're going to need a woman on this case. (laughs) And there were not a lot of choices. And so that was my first employment law case. And so that's been the career for the last 30 years. And and that's one question I I wanted to ask because I'm always curious about that. There are a lot of people that find they have an aptitude for law. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's something about their personality that's that suits them with that career. But there's I don't always know the stories of why they head out into different directions because there's a lot of different kinds of law you can do. Uh, and so I, I, I wonder, if did you have any concept of that going through law school? Did you think, oh, this is kind of interesting? Or were you just in it to to kind of figure out your career once you got into it? You know, interestingly, when I started practicing, employment law wasn't even offered in my law school um, or in most law schools. In the late 80s, it was not a thing. Um, It took uh, George H.W. Bush signing the Americans with Disabilities Act, Clinton signing the Family and Medical Leave Act, uh, Anita Hill Mm -hmm. uh, bringing sexual harassment to everybody's uh, purview. You know, once we kind of became aware of all those things, that's when employment law became a thing was in the 90s. And I was just so lucky to catch that wave early and have spent 30 years doing it. Okay. Is is there any sort of official process you go through to specialize in something like that? I mean, I, I know there's a lot of different areas you can go, and some of them require extra 
Mm-hmm. education or extra yeah. licensing or something like that. Is, is this one of those? You can do that. I am not board certified, okay. um, but I've spent 30 years answering people's questions. And, and I mean, literally, I think my job is I fire people for a living. Oh. And I, <laughs> I know that sounds terrible, but um, Kyle Ingham at PRPC this morning said to me, and I asked permission to use it, he said, you're one of my favorite people to hate to call. Mm. And that kind of sums up what a lawyer is. People don't call us when things are going well. They call right. us when things are rough. And, you know, I'm happy to be that favorite person that he can call and get help when things are going rough with an employee. Does that kind of put you in a position of being the hired bad guy? Is, is that sometimes, something that you maybe are okay with as yeah. as a role? Yeah, I think sometimes it does. I mean, I think all lawyers are sometimes the hired right. bad guy. But um, I really see my role as trying to help employers navigate all the legal landmines that they've got with all the regulations that they have to follow and mm. everything else. And then I also see my role as um, somebody who helps them through things like the current labor shortage. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm hearing from a lot of employers about the difficulties with that. And so hopefully I'm gathering enough information to be able to help them through it. Okay. Before we get too into the the current event side sure. or the actual work side of what you do, could, could you give me sort of an outline of what your career has looked like? Like, who have you worked for? Sure. Um, what path did you take, you know, from 1986 on to, yeah. to now? Yeah. So I started with the Underwood Firm, which at that time was the largest firm in Amarillo. Um, I spent three years there, and then the group that broke off and formed the Sprouse Law Firm. Mm-hmm. So Harlow Sprouse. Jerry Smith, John Mazzola, and Marty Rowley, and me. And I was okay. a, I was a third-year or fourth-year associate and um, certainly the least experienced and least named type That's why person. your name didn't end up on the, uh, <laughs> exactly. on the wall yeah. there. Yeah. So those four partners and I left the Underwood Law Firm. We started the Sprouse Firm. It was fun. It was the Wild West. We, you know, we didn't have desks. We didn't have anything to start. And, uh, and I really enjoyed that. But after about six years, that was a, it had turned into a very large firm Mm -hmm. and we spent a lot of time in partnership meetings, which, you know, just put a gun in my head and shoot me. That's not what I enjoy doing. And so pretty much since the, since 98, 96, something like that, I've been out on my own with a few, a few detours, but, um, so right now I practice with Chris Wright and Wade Bird and we have a small firm on 45th Street in a beautiful building that Chris built. And um, it's the most fun and the most content I've ever been practicing law. I'm, I'm eager to hear what makes that fun, what brings that contentment of having been in a really large firm yeah. setting in a couple of different environments, and then going to one that is relatively small. Absolutely. What do you like about um, that smaller environment? Well, as I said, no partnership meetings. Right. I mean, our partnership meeting usually involves Chris or Wade standing in my doorway. Is this okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You want to do this? Okay, good. We're done. That's the meeting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a lot less bureaucracy, a lot less formalization. We have two office dogs. So okay. we have a legal assistant and, and Wade, uh, my partner, who bring their dogs to work every day. And my shoes hurt this morning and I wasn't wearing shoes as I walked around the office. I mean, that's... That's ideal, right. you know. It's like working at home, but having a receptionist. <laughs> That's perfect. Has employment law sort of been your bread and butter then the, yes. the last few decades here? Yes, it has. The, my, pretty much my whole practice has been employment law. So for people that don't have a real good sense of what mm-hmm. that is, um, and, and maybe they think of it in terms of sexual harassment or 
firing people, you know, like yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. Give us an idea of, of what your day-to-day might be. I mean, what kinds of things are you working on? Sure. Um, I, I spend a lot of time, um, employers will call me and say uh, that somebody has uh, claimed that they were discriminated against. Okay. So last Friday, um, I had a client in, the, in one of the other counties who uh, had a claim where the woman said that she had been fired for age discrimination. And so I went out and I sat down with the client and sat down with a whole bunch of their employees and interviewed all of them and tried to just kind of figure out what's going on. And then because she has made a claim to the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, it'll be my responsibility to file what they call a position statement, just file the paperwork and represent them in front of the governmental agency. So I do a lot with governmental agencies. Okay. Um, but I also do things like, oh, I had a phone call um, last week about an employee had assaulted another employee. And the, the employer was, of course, very concerned and like what's to, their liability? In yes, situation yes. Like and that. how do we handle this? And do we go to the police? And um, so just walking them through the issues that come up all the time in just employing people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're dealing with people. And so it's not cut and dried. This this isn't, we're not creating a will. We're not writing contracts, although I do a lot of that. But this is people being people. And sometimes that creates friction in the workplace. Do the rules or the laws that you have to be aware of, do those change? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> That's a question I ask, uh, sort of knowing the answer. Yeah. But like, like, tell me how how those things change yeah. and, and why they change. Yeah, let me give you a great example. So the 2021 Texas legislature was considered one of the most conservative of all time and all kinds of very uh, far-right laws passed. Interestingly... In that same session, the Texas legislature passed a new sexual harassment law. Um, normally, sexual harassment had only applied to employers who had at least 15 employees. Now it applies to employers who have one. Okay. Um, so they've greatly expanded the number of businesses that are now subject to the sexual harassment laws. In addition, for the first time ever, the Texas legislature said if you're a business owner or if you're the supervisor, your personal assets are going to be at risk over this. If you're a harasser, hmm. you are now personally going to be able to be sued. Um, and then in addition to that, they lengthen the time that a complainant has to bring a sexual harassment claim. So in every way, they expanded the sexual harassment laws in Texas to protect more workers. Okay, But that also means that my employers need to take a lot of additional steps in terms of training and policies and just being very vigilant about what's going on in the workplace. How much of your work is proactive in a situation like that? Are you waiting for employers to come to you and say, oh, I need to understand this? Or are you like going out and saying, okay, I need to educate you on how this has changed and how it might affect you? That's a great question. And in my practice, I try to be pretty proactive. And so I have an employment law blog I send out employment law alerts to my clients and to others who have signed up for the emails and stuff. Um, And I try to keep people on top of what they're about to encounter. I try not to tell them like what's going through the House of Representatives or something because that doesn't affect them yet. They don't care until it is it is literally hitting their desk. But once it has, then I'll put together training seminars. I'll write their policies for them. I'll update their handbooks. 
So yeah, we try to be really, really proactive, but there are going to be times when you don't catch things until, you know, something bad's already happened. Are most of your clients local or in the panhandle? Um, pretty much. Yeah. I've got, I've got clients other places. Um, I had a new client come out of Bryan, Texas last week. Okay. Um, but I'm only licensed in Texas, so they're right. all coming out of Texas, but all over the panhandle. And I love that. I love to get out and go to an employer that's in, you know, Perryton or Dumas or something. It's, it's fun. And I love touring my clients' businesses. I like to understand okay. how they work, what the pieces of it are. And I, I assume that those clients are pretty diverse. It's not all yeah. within, you know, certain types of businesses or anything yeah. else. It's no, I don't specialize in any one kind of business. Um, although naturally in the panhandle, I'm going to, you know, you're going to have a lot of feedlots mm-hmm. and you're going to have a lot of agriculture and you're going to have, but I've got restaurants and I've got, um, you know, heating and air clients and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I know the past couple of years has been probably really interesting for employers. As <laughs> they've, they've tried to navigate you know, shifting, not just, not just laws or or OSHA laws or anything like that, but like recommendations uh, sometimes that don't have legal weight behind it, but they're trying to take care of their employees in uh, an environment where safety is kind of uncertain. And, And so tell me like how you and your clients have dealt with all the COVID restrictions, recommendations, all that stuff. It's been a very busy time, um, but it's been it's been great. I've had a lot of clients who have been um, very concerned about how to keep their workers safe, very concerned about how to keep them working through all of mm-hmm. this. And I've been um, quite um, happy to see how employers here have been over backwards to try to help through all of this. Um, it hasn't been easy. I mean, yeah, I, I for the whole time I've gotten CDC recommendations and then I've tried to read all of that and boil it down to, for my clients to here's what here's ABC, what you've got to do. Um, of course, in November, the vaccine mandate started coming down. Right. And my clients were absolutely scrambling. In fact, the um, vaccine mandate that was for employers of 100 or more went into effect on a Monday in January and the Supreme Court didn't rule on it until Thursday. So uh, Thursday after that. So we had already put policies in place. We'd already done training. We'd already tried to find all the test kits, you know, and then everything just came to a big halt. So, you know, and I, I hated that for my clients, but there's no way to wait until the courts decide what to do when enforcement starts on a Monday or something. Mm -hmm. So we had to get ready for it. Tell me about, uh, you, you mentioned previously the labor shortage yeah. and, and how some of your clients have, have dealt with that. I mean, from from a legal standpoint, what are some of the things that you've been thinking about or talking about? You know, <laughs> one of the things I've been telling my clients is that um, we as employers can't fall into that trap of saying it's just government benefits or people don't want to work and, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. We as employers have to look inside and figure out what's going on that is making people not want to work for us mm-hmm. or quit their jobs or whatever. And, you know, listening to a lot of workers, listening to a lot of employers, reading a lot over the last few months. I mean, I've come to a couple of conclusions. I think with middle-class workers who have a little bit of margin in their lives. Um, I saw a great Atlantic article uh, by Maggie Mertens, and she said, devotion to an employer is often a one-sided romance 
when jobs won't love you back, it makes you want to rethink things. Okay. Yeah. And I think there's been a lot of rethinking. We, th- we are seeing that. We are seeing a lot of workers break up with okay. their employers, the ones who can afford to. And so the pan- pandemic has had people looking at and saying, a tremendous amount of people have retired, many more than we expected. Earlier to. than maybe early, they thought. early retirement and have said, I can live on less. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've decided to break up with their employers. We've had people who, have stayed home with their kids and said, I don't want my whole identity to be tied up in my work. I'm going to, I'm going to do more as a family person. Okay. All of that is affecting, you know, that, that middle-class work space. And then from the working class, it's, it's another dynamic, which is, you know, Amazon's opening next month and they're paying $18 an hour in full benefits to their employees. And all you have to have is a GED and the ability to speak English. Yeah. That changes the job market. Yeah. And our employers have here have got to look at, you know, what does that mean to me as an employer? What am I going to have to do differently to be able to retain people? Because retaining people is a whole lot easier than hiring new ones. I, I wonder if, you know, people have talked often about the cost of living in Amarillo, of it, it being less expensive than other places. And and maybe that's something that has also trickled down into some employers who have thought, well, I can get away by, you know, paying less than you might have gotten in Dallas or someplace like that because it's cheaper to live here. Uh, and then you have Amazon coming in or you have Bucky's coming in, you know, yeah. and they're going to pay a lot better hourly wage. And so, yeah, are you hearing employers saying, oh, no, we've got this competition that's like legit outside competition that we've got to face up to at this point. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. Uh, a lot of my local employers don't see them as competition, but you're competing for the same employees, the the people who might not have a college education, the people who may be performing, you know, manual labor, mm-hmm. uh, those people who um, will be looking at CVS, Walmart, Walgreens, Target, they're all paying $15 an hour and more. Um you know, there is just not a market here anymore for somebody that's making um, ten dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. There, there are there you will not find employees, which is why you cost. see a lot of like restaurants yes. know, that are struggling to find servers because typically those have been lower paying jobs. Correct. Uh, employers, restaurant employers, have an extra thing in the law called the tip credit, mm-hmm. and they only have to pay two dollars and thirteen cents an hour, and then make up the rest of the minimum wage, which is still only seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour in terms of the employee's tips. And I just don't think that's sustainable. I don't think empl- restaurant employers are going to be able to use the tip credit anymore. I think they're going to have to pay an hourly rate, and then the tips on top of that are what's going to be able to keep people in that job. When you have something like the minimum wage being what it is, and you have entry-level jobs like Amazon's that are twice that, do, do you think you'll have you know, the private sphere kind of pulling you know, the the national minimum wage along with it, or even in states? I mean, is that going to happen? I do. I believe that the minimum wage is not going to have to be legislated. Yeah. I think it is. It is just... The market will, like, The market is doing it. And that's okay. I mean, everybody around here is big on free market. That's what the free market looks like now. And, you know, I still have employers that are not ready for that. Mm -hmm. And and we're going to have to look at some things like childcare. You know, the the child care agencies here and the child care providers do not have the ability to pay their employees $15 an hour if you don't want your child care costs to go up tremendously. Right. So there's going to be some things we're going to have to say, look, 
Services like childcare are absolutely essential to the economy, and we're going to have to subsidize those. And we already are. I mean, the Texas Workforce Commission, just in the last month here in the panhandle, has said they will pay childcare free for a year for employees who work in restaurants, for example, Hmm. or other service industries. So there is a lot of subsidizing going on, but I think it's going to have to continue because none of the other cogs in the wheel work if we don't have childcare. Based on your your experience with employers here and businesses here, has the impact of, let's say, the pandemic, the employee shortage, all those things, has it been different here than like in other parts of the state? Or people talk about Amarillo sort of being in a bubble. Are we still in that protective bubble or are we experiencing the same thing that everybody's experiencing now? I mean, I don't think anything misses Amarillo in the long run. I think it just takes longer to get here. But, um, yeah, I think I think that we experienced less of in terms of shutdowns, mm-hmm. less in terms of mass mandates, all those sorts of things. But you still had employers who could not keep their restaurants open mm-hmm. or, you know, we still had a, we still had a lot of effects from it. I think we've ridden it out pretty well, but I think it's a new world now. And if we don't accept that the two years, last two years have completely completely been a seismic change in the labor market, you know, we're kidding ourselves. Right. I wanted to ask you, uh, before we stop talking about the legal stuff, what specifically about the work that you do here in Amarillo, what what do you like about it? Like, what keeps you doing that as your focus as an attorney? You know, uh, for one thing, it's the only thing I know. <laughs> <laughs> do what you're good at. So, yeah, yeah, yeah or, or at least do what you know. Um, but... I I just I love my clients. Mm-hmm. I, I love the business owners here. There there are people here that are have thrown their whole hearts and souls into their businesses. Um, let me give a shout out to Brian Kelleher at Five Seven Five Pizza. Yeah. Um, Brian has done everything he could to help his people out through all of this, and he's not the only one. I mean there there are just. Um, a lot of good people running businesses here, and I'm more than happy to partner with them and try to help them do that. And your clients have been established clients. They've been brand new businesses. Sure. I mean, you've you've worked with everybody. Yeah, and, and I think um, that's – I like the variety a lot. Um, I don't think I could ever go in as general counsel for one company mm-hmm. because I think I'd be bored, you know. I, I want to be hit from different questions and different people every day. Okay, so let's let's take a uh, a real sharp turn away from <laughs> lawyering. Yeah, uh, and let's talk about birds because <laughs> the the other thing I know about you, and this this is one reason I wanted to talk to you on the show, is because you are a birder, you are a photographer, you're a very good photographer. Thank you, and you have captured some really amazing photos of birds, and so <laughs> I, I wanted to hear about you know this. It's not a side gig, I guess it's a hobby, uh, but how you got into that and and why you do it here. So yeah, birding is a new thing for me in the last four years, but I've always been um, real interested in nature. I grew up as a campfire girl, okay. going to camp every summer, yeah. you know. Uh, when Dorsey and I were married, we camped in tents. Oh gosh. Um, when I married my wonderful current husband and hopefully last husband, if you'll have <laughs> me, uh, Ron Butterfield. Uh, we talked about camping, and I said, you know, we're in our 40s, and I want to keep camping, but I am done with my yeah, tent camping that's days. That's for young people. Yes. So we have a camper with a memory foam mattress, our own bathroom, and a microwave. So right. good with that kind of camping. 
Um, and so we still love to get out. Our bucket list is to go to all the national parks, and mm-hmm. we've been to half of them. And so as we were doing all that, you know, of course, I did photography in high school with my journalism degree. I did photography in college. So I've always loved to do photography. My husband, Ron, is also a photographer. And um, so we were always taking pictures of wildlife. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you go to Yellowstone and we're going to see a moose and we're going to see an elk and we're going to take pictures of all that. And you come to the panhandle and you go, look, it's a squirrel. (laughs) I mean, we just don't have... You know, this used to be the American Serengeti, but it's not anymore. Right. We, we don't have a lot of big animals to take pictures of, a lot of exciting wildlife. But about four years ago, I discovered that we do have bald eagles. Mm-hmm. And I became fascinated with bald eagles. And then when you're watching eagles, you wind up seeing hawks because um, they're always trying to steal each other's food. Um, and so then I kind of got interested in, okay, let's look at the raptors. And it has just blossomed from there. Um, we have a we're on a flyway, so right. during spring and fall migration, there's a lot of birds that come through here. As long as we have water, they'll stop over. And so there's a lot to see here. Um, it feeds into my wanderlust because I love to be out traveling. And so, um, like on a Saturday morning, I'll get up at six o'clock in the morning and I'll drive to Rita Blanca Lake and Dalhart mm-hmm. and walk the lake and take my camera and look at the birds and take pictures and just be out in nature. And it is so different and so relieving from mm-hmm. what I do day to day. It's very mindful. You don't do anything else when you're birding except for focus on the bird and trying to get the picture of it. So it has turned into a really good downtime kind of hobby for me. I'm I'm curious, having seen your photos, you know, which are always... You're extremely close up and really interesting. Like a lot of times the birds are doing stuff. They're not just sitting there being a bird on a branch, you know? And I wonder, like, do you see a bird and you just stay focused on it? And you're like, this bird's going to do something and and wait? Or are you just always snapping thousands and thousands of photos and you happen to catch something really cool in one of them? All of the above. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you definitely get to learn the bird behavior. And so with a bald eagle, I sitting on a power pole out by the Tyson plant in Northeast Amarillo. Um, well, one thing is he poops before he takes off. So that's a pretty good sign. Okay. <laughs> so you can catch him as he's flying. But usually if there's any kind of food around, they're going to be fighting over food. And so, yeah, you kind of learn their behaviors and you keep the, the camera definitely trained on them for all of that. But some of it, yeah, I mean, my first photos for the first two years were pretty much perched birds as I as I learned them. But as I've become a better photographer, gotten better equipment, learned more about the birds, the yeah, it's progressed. So now I get to find, you know, bald eagles pulling fish out of the ice at Southeast right, Park. Right, right. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite series of photos that you've done. I, <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I think people... I imagine listeners may still be surprised to hear that there are bald eagles here. We think of that as... Well, maybe in Minnesota or in Alaska, this is not bald eagle territory. Of course it is. You don't always see them in the middle of Amarillo. But like, tell me about those populations and what you've learned about them. Sure. Um, so, uh, by the way, I did see one at John Stiff Park the other day. So did sometimes really? they are okay. in the middle of Amarillo. But, um, yeah, we have about two dozen bald eagles that winter here. Not all of them are the white-headed, white-tailed mature eagles that you're used to because it takes five years for them to look like that. So sometimes it's just a big brown bird with a big honking nose. Okay. And that's that's a juvenile bald eagle or an immature bald eagle. 
Um, but we have a couple dozen of them. They are very frequently seen at that uh, huge prairie dog town at the airport. Okay. They like prairie dogs. It's they a buffet, right? Tastes like chicken. Yeah. And um, so they're at the airport. They're at Masterson and St. Francis intersection, which is right behind the Tyson plant. Okay. Um, Tyson has a lake called Lake McGee out there, and they very much congregate there because there's a ton of ducks and fish and prairie dogs. So they they really do have a buffet out there. But we've had them in like the one we were talking about at Southeast Park. They're sometimes at the Greenways Playa, mm-hmm. um, but they only winter here. So okay. our, our it's eagles, only in the winter months. Yeah. So our eagles show up about November first. They're going to be leaving in the next month. So probably by the end of March they'll be gone. They'll go nest somewhere else, mostly up north, and then they'll show back up next winter. And they follow the waterfowl, the ducks, and the sandhill cranes and that kind of stuff that come down here to winter. So they'll follow the food. And that's probably something that people who are not birders uh, don't know about this area is that it does have a very substantial and diverse bird population, but that's always seasonal. And so it's there's a lot of pass-through. There is. There is. I mean, we have, you know, white-winged doves in my backyard all year, sure. all year round. But but we do have a lot of birds that are only here during migration season. And I can tell you, the the birders right now, we're just all a Twitter. Mm-hmm. Sorry, bad pun. Um, because the birds start showing up right about March the 1st. And so we're we're looking for birds to come through. And then we have other birds that are just here in the summer. Um, beautiful painted bunnings down at um, Paladura Canyon. They're easy to spot down there and they're only here in the summer. And you cannot believe how many people will come from other parts of the state or out of state really? to come see our painted bunnings in, in the canyon. I was going to ask, is is there a, uh, you, you talked about a, a bucket list of national parks. Is, is there a bucket list of birds, you know, to <laughs> spot or to photograph you know, for you, do, do birders have that sort of list? Oh, yes, we do. There is a online web community through Cornell University, which is the biggest birding mm-hmm. university in the world. And they have a, um, a software called uh, eBird. And we all get on the, the eBird website and we list the birds that we've seen. And what that does is create um, a list of hotspots to okay. go see birds. And But it also is incredible citizen science. They Because people report where they're seeing the birds and the number of each species and any rarities they're seeing, uh, we have a much more um, complicated and full map of where birds are and where they're migrating to and everything. Is this area a hotspot? I mean, is, is this a place that is on the radar of birders because of those migrations? It patterns? is. It is. A Paladura Canyon, of course, is a hotspot for a lot of things. I mean, people love to come camp in Paladura Canyon. They love to uh, come up and mountain bike. But yeah, it's also on the radar for a lot of birders. Um, and then we have other places. Meredith is a really great stopover mm-hmm. for, I mean, we had... A few weeks ago, we had a tundra swan that had come through hmm. and landed on Lake Meredith just for a couple of days. And Where are those from? Is tundra that... swans are mostly north. Okay. They shouldn't be here. <laughs> um, I've seen them, oh, places like north northeastern part of Kansas. That's about as far south as they usually come. So, you know, we, we do get unusual birds, but we just get a lot of birds that we've never paid attention to before. Right. Um, I had Wilson's warblers, which are a tiny little yellow bird, in my backyard uh, last spring. And I said something to Annette Carlisle, who's a big birder. Mm-hmm. And um, and I said, I can't believe it. I've never had these in my backyard before. And Annette said, yes, you have. You just didn't notice. So it really is a matter of, of seeing things through mm-hmm. new eyes. 
it's like when you are looking at buying a new car and all of a sudden you see that car <laughs> everywhere because you started paying attention to it. That's true. And or you've already bought it and you didn't and realize like, how ubiquitous how it was going to be this, yeah. and you found out everybody drives one of these. That's, well, the last thing I wanted to ask you to kind of um, wrap up this section is your your careers or your interests, I guess, are very different. You know, the the legal world and work law and all that stuff, and then you know, photographing birds. Tell me what the the birding and the photography kind of does for you in terms of work life balance or fulfillment and that sort of thing. That's a great question. My husband is an earth and space science teacher at Caprock High School, um, and so. He is also very interested in the environment and nature and all of those things. So I, th I think there's just a, a natural yearning for something besides just sitting in an office in front of a computer or mm -hmm. talking on the phone. As much as I love my clients, I, I have to get away from that sometimes. And so just being outside is that 180-degree switch that I need. So I don't know that they're necessarily tied together. I think the fact that they're kind of opposites helps okay. a lot. Is this a good place to live if you have that sort of outdoor focus? It is. Um, I mean, you know, there's certainly other places that that might be more attractive, but Amarillo's got other things going for it. So I can always jump in the car and go to those other places and then come home. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by the Center for the Studies of the American West at West Texas A&M University. Otherwise, this organization is known as Seesaw. On Thursday, April 7th, cowboy poet Red Stiegel will be speaking as part of the Seesaw Knoll Lecture Series and the WT Distinguished Lecture Series. This free event, which is titled Values of the Cow Country Told in Story, Verse, and Song, begins at 7 p.m. in Legacy Hall in the Jack B. Kelly Student Center on the WT campus. Now, if you don't know him, Stiegel is the 2006 Poet Laureate of Texas. He's a renowned singer-songwriter, Western musician, and a cowboy poet who has recorded more than 20 albums. He is a legend. He also holds an agriculture degree from WT. If you can't attend in person on April 7th, you can attend online by visiting bit.ly slash Stiegel. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash S-T-E-A-G-A-L-L. -L. Okay, I'm back with Vicki Wilmarth. Vicki, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes, and, and I think this is in the basement, uh, a collection of taxidermied birds of the high plains um, shown in their habitat. And it's it's in the basement. It's not always easy to get to. You have to kind of know it's there. But you can see a lot of birds there. Um, they're not living, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I hope not if they're taxidermied. <laughs> uh, learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the pandemic, but what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people? Um, I think I alluded to it earlier, but uh, the way that employers here um, really treated their employees, um, the way that the community came together. There there was, I mean, obviously there were some things we didn't do right. We we almost killed our hospitals, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, the, we we just crushed our healthcare system under the weight of all the, the viruses and the weight of, you know, not taking some precautions we could have taken. But at the same time, while that was going on, people were uh, particularly employers that I know were really looking out for their their people. Okay, other than wind, what does this area have too much of? 
Okay, as a birder, I'm going to have to say we have trashy parks. Yeah. Thompson Park is an absolute crown jewel. It is a beautiful park. Um, birders from other places are attracted there. We have people playing frisbee golf there. We have people doing powerboat races on that big lake. Mm-hmm. So people come in from out of town and go to Thompson Park for activities. And we have just trashed it up. Um, and as a birder, what we do is like we'll walk along the creek and we'll walk along those those ponds. And particularly when we don't have enough water, those ponds get low. All of the Coke bottles and stuff come, all the plastic and everything comes to the surface and you see it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's terrible for the environment. It's terrible for the birds. It's terrible for our out-of-town guests. So I don't know what all that's going to take, but I sure hope we make more of an emphasis on cleaning up these beautiful parks that we have. And that's that's almost a cultural thing. Um, even if you have initiatives to clean up the park, you have to get people to stop throwing stuff, yeah. you know, out the window or out the yeah. door of their car. You do. And and we also, I mean, I I can just see it. We need more trash cans in every park. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need them everywhere so people don't have an excuse not to walk a few feet and put it in the trash can. And then we need somebody coming through and picking up those trash bags, I don't know, twice a day on the weekends because they do get full. Right. And then with the wind, it could get full. And <laughs> we knew wind was going to come part. into yeah. this at some point. What does this area not have enough of? I would say concern about climate change. Okay. Um we we need to get serious about what changes are he- already here with climate mm-hmm. change. Um, you've talked about water. A lot of us have talked about how we're just we don't have water, and and part of the problem is we don't have enough rain. But part of the problem is we're pumping the Ogallala Aquifer mm-hmm. to death, literally to death. Um, it takes a thousand years for new water to percolate down to the aquifers. So we've we've got to understand that we are becoming a semi-arid. We're already semi-arid. We're becoming a desert. And we're going to have to make some changes because of that, because of the heat and because mm-hmm. of the dryness. And when you're thinking of large employers, um, you know, that there's a lot of individual things people can do. Mm-hmm. I can make some changes with water usage. Um, but that's, I mean, that's a drop in the bucket compared to some of the large businesses and how they use water. And and those are changes that are very long-term kinds of changes. It's, it's not something we can do real fast. Uh, and, and that's where a lot of, you know, the personal helplessness is because uh, I don't know how to change those things. Yeah. I, I don't know how to get, you know, feed yards to, to make their changes and farmers to make their changes and all those things. Yeah. I mean, so th- most of it is how we make every change in a democratic country. We vote for people who are ready to make change. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Um, and the other thing is we do know people. We know people who run feedlots. We know people who, um, you know, all of us do. We run into them in our daily life. I mean, one of the things I'm really impressed about is that, you know, you used to be able, even a couple of years ago, drive anywhere in the panhandle and see corn, 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 mm-hmm. corn um, growing. It's not so much anymore. Because it uses and a lot of it water. It uses a tremendous amount yeah. of water. And we have other dryland crops that will work better. And you know, I love that we've got a conversation going on that and we just need to start getting really serious about it um, because we won't have workers, for example, for these large employers if they don't find this an attractive place to be. And, you know, it's hard to attract people to a desert. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? I use two words all the time. Um, I use the word easy 
live in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, spend at least two more hours a day in their car than I do. Um, you know, that that ease of the commute, for example, means that I can have a hobby like birding because I have time. I can serve on charity boards because I can make it to a four o'clock meeting. I can um, go to all kinds of arts events at the Globe News Center because I just go straight from work. And it's, I mean, things are, they live in is easy here. Yeah. I think that's a song. Um, and uh, the other word I use all the time with Amarillo is community. Okay. Um, I, I do love the way that Amarillo will come together for a cause. Um, I was on the Opportunity School board for quite a while. And I know you just interviewed Jill Goodrich. And Opportunity School was just able to build a $4.5 million child care center right. in in a child care desert, which is the northeast side of Amarillo. And that that's because lots and lots and lots of people had a heart for kids in Amarillo. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the community aspect of being able to go to a party and know so many people there. That's I was I was at a coffee shop and I walked in. I didn't know anybody there. And I was like, this is weird. <laughs> you know, and that's... You wouldn't think about that in a larger town, but you in Amarillo, not. I expect to know somebody almost everywhere I go. Oh, not only in Amarillo, but on the plane coming to and from oh, yeah. Amarillo. Waiting in the... In, uh, in DFW Airport. Yep. If you don't know somebody at Love Airport, you think something's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo? Uh, well, that one's pretty easy. I've lived in Wolfland ever since I've lived here. Okay. And it was, of course, being a Dallas-Fort Worth girl, it was the trees. Mm-hmm. But it turned into a lot more than that. Wolfland is very walkable. Yeah. And so we see all of our neighbors all the time out front walking. EA and Rex Vermillion, who owned the Burger Kings here, right. are good friends of ours. And they live about six houses down. And we never have to actually make an effort to see EA and Rex because we're going to see them out in the front right. yard right. at some point, you know. Um, and that's true for the whole neighborhood. I mean, everybody, we live really close to Austin Park. So everybody's walking towards the park and they walk right past our house. And I, I love being able to talk to neighbors that way. Do those trees provide a good bird habitat? They do. Owls and they do. Like okay. That? Let me tell you the bird story for those trees. Um, so 10 years ago, we didn't have Cooper's hawks nesting mm-hmm. in this urban environment. And they have just started to in the last few years. And during the pandemic, the first year, 2020, summer of 2020, we had a pair of Cooper's hawks that decided to nest in a tree in our next door neighbor's front yard. Big, huge British elm, 50 feet up, there was a Cooper's hawk's nest. And, you know, we were all a little bored. It was the pandemic and mm-hmm. we weren't going anywhere. We weren't traveling. But our whole block was fascinated with the Cooper's hawks and they had two fledglings and they were zooming all over our neighborhood. They would get on the roof and they would chase cicadas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, I have a thousand pictures. And there is a um, a post on my bird blog. Oh, um, <laughs> let me promote that. www.texaspanhandlebirdnerd.com. Okay. Um, there is a blog post about the Cooper's Hawks. And uh, so... We were just fascinated for weeks watching these tiny little white cotton balls turn into these big hawks. And um, we'd get up, my I shouldn't say we, my husband would get up on the roof with the camera and get pictures of them, you know, in the nest. And, but I met more neighbors just coming by and saying, what are the hawks up to? Yeah. (laughs) Is it, is it uh, with a a Cooper's hawk? Is that 
uh, the kind of bird you need to worry about your small dogs or anything like that? No, no, they, they're, they're they're fairly... it's a, it's, they weigh less than a pound, the okay, Cooper's okay, hawks do. Good. But you do have to worry about your house sparrows. They they will take out, uh, and white-winged doves. They'll take out okay. the doves and the sparrows. Got it. What's your favorite local restaurant? I would have to say Roosters. Right. Uh, Carolina and Tanner do an amazing job. I could eat their salad five days a week if I needed to. Um, and they're just the nicest people and you can go in and pick up a casserole, um, and not have to cook dinner or you can go in and pick up an amazing pie for Thanksgiving. So yeah, I love roosters. I I still feel like roosters for a a restaurant that has been there as long as they have and Mm -hmm. and Carolina and Tanner that it's still sort of underappreciated or or not as well known as they should be. Yes. So why are we talking about it? Be quiet. We don't want anybody else Never mind. Do not eat there. We don't want it to be really crowded all the time. (laughs) Um, What's your favorite local coffee shop? I'm a Palace person. Okay. um, And I I, I just think Palace is great. And I have a group of women that I meet there regularly. But it's funny. My uh, adult son lives in Chicago and uh, lived in D.C. before that, very much the world traveler. And, um, I mean, he cannot wait to come and go to Palace when, really? he com- when he comes home. He just thinks that it is great, not just for Amarillo, but for everywhere he goes. Okay. That's good to know. And when was the last time you visited the Big Texan? I think it's been about three years ago. Uh, my husband has some wonderful cousins, and they had a cousin's reunion. And we had... Um, uh, his cousin-in-law and their child from Massachusetts had never been to Texas. Okay. And so they wanted to go to the Big Texan, and we gave them the full experience, and I think that involved rattlesnakes and cowboy hats I'm and sure all that kind of stuff and uh, the people that serenade you. Yeah. Um, and then we took them out to Paladar Canyon and uh, let them feed corn to the Owdads, and they oh, were wow. okay. they were totally charmed. That's they, an they thought that... Texas was amazing at that point. Okay. Well, that concludes the uh, eight straight questions. Vicki, I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Um, Because we talk so much about birding, I will say that there is an amazing Facebook group um, that Annette Carlisle and Hap Hamas and Tom Johnson and some other people started. It's called Birds of the Texas Panhandle. And it's a, you know, you just have to ask for an invitation to get in. But Birders all over the area post their gorgeous photos of the birds there. Um, and it's a great resource to figure out what we do have going on here. And then, uh, and then of course, I told you about my bird blog. So there, if you want to learn more about panhandle birds and the variety that we have here and see the pictures and everything, there are some online resources that you can do that. And I, I, I think that's interesting, whether or not you are a birder, like I like to be able to identify something. Yeah. So that's what I like about those is you can see that bird. You're like, oh, I've seen that bird. Now I know what it is. Yes. It has a name. You yes, know? It, it does have a name. And we'll tell you some about, you know, about its habits and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, it, it has really increased my knowledge to see what other people are seeing. Okay. Well, Vicki Wilmar, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Vicki for the interview. Find out more about her legal practice at VickiWilmarth.com and see her bird photos at TexasPanhandleBirdNerd.com. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode, and thanks to my sponsors, Wick Realty, the Seesaw Knoll Lecture Series featuring Red Stiegel on April 7th, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you like this podcast, and I hope you do, 
Please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. That helps other people find the show and it makes me feel good about myself. As usual, this podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarello. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 241. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.